All right, so, so NBA player Steph Curry is considered one of the best. Right, Kyle? Oh, I thought you were a big Steph Curry fan. Not anymore, okay. Okay, teenagers. All right, so, so a lot of people consider him one of the best, if not the best shooter in the history of basketball. So he was drafted in 2009, He's been named to the All-Star team six times. He's been named the Most Valuable Player two times. He's won three NBA championships. He holds the record for most three-pointers in a season and, and various other three-pointer records and shooting titles. In fact, his ability to shoot three-pointers at 6'3", 185 pounds, has revolutionized the game and changed the type of players that can actually find success on the court. So Curry's also well-known, though, for, for something he writes on his game day sneakers. It says, I can do all things, dot, 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 and put it up there for you. Sometimes it'll just say Phil413. Um, that's not Phil, Phil Kratz. That's what I write on my shoes before Doxa, <laughs> Phil Kratz413. So. Now this is a reference, so I can do all things. This is a reference to Philippians 4.13, which states, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So Curry's popularity grew so much over the course of his 10-year career that, that Under Armour, his shoe company, actually has an I-can-do-all-things marketing campaign. You can see this, this phrase right here emblazoned on, on T-shirts and shorts and shoes. And there's no doubt that early on, Curry was very clear about his evangelical Christian faith. And, and his reference to this passage was a reminder of the gifts that God had, had granted him, and, and he realized the platform he was on as, a, as an NBA basketball player. And I think, I think that he's done that, but, but I do think that sometimes he plays a little safe when, when it comes to the specifics. Now, I'm not here to, to judge Curry's heart or authenticity, but, but we would need to sit down to him to find out to get a better measurement of all that. What we can do, though, is, is take a look at the explanation he gave in an interview in 2018 as to why he writes, I can do all things on his shoes. So this is a direct quote from Steph Curry. Quote, it's a mantra that I live by and something that drives me every single day. It'll hopefully inspire people to find something that drives them, whether that's a verse or some other motivating force that keeps you hungry and keeps you driven. That's mine, and you can pick whatever yours is and let that drive you too as you continue with basketball or whatever field you're in in life. Now, Steph Curry has described this verse as a way to build confidence in his abilities from his 2018 interview. He says that he uses it for motivation to drive him to, to succeed on the basketball court. He also says that maybe you can find a way to be driven too, right? Maybe it's, some, maybe it's this Bible verse, maybe it's some other Bible verse, maybe it's some other motivating force that propels you to greatness in whatever you do. So it's not really about the verse, or the Bible, or what it says. It's about how to muster up enough strength and greatness to succeed. And if this doesn't work for you, then find something else. Now, I don't want to completely judge Steph Curry, since I can't talk to him and ask him follow-up questions, but, but this whole thing cuts to the heart of the topic tonight. The lie we're going to examine tonight is this phrase, believe in yourself. You can be or do anything that you want. Believe in yourself. You can be or do anything that you want. Now, now, our culture is saturated with telling us that we must fulfill our dreams. Right? It seems from birth we are told we can be anything we want. 
Don't let anyone hold you back from your dreams. You are the best and no one is better. If you just believe in yourself, you can live the life you've always dreamed of. Now, I know you're going to call me dream killer as we unpack this topic and specifically look at this passage from Philippians 4. But my hope is that you will come away encouraged by the truth that actually is, should make you feel more confident about the world and the way it works, since all the things are rooted in the sovereignty of God. We truly can do all things through Christ, but it probably doesn't mean exactly what you think it means. Now, believing in yourself, on the other hand, will bring destruction. You are not sovereign. You have extreme limits, and recognizing this fact will relieve you of a lot of stress and anxiety. Tonight, we're going to take a look at this topic in the same way we've looked at our previous topics, by defending and contending. Defending and contending. When the world tells us that we need to believe in ourselves and become whatever we want, we must first defend the faith against self-sufficiency. And, and two, contend for the faith through contentment. So defend the faith through self-sufficiency, contend for the faith through contentment. So let's take a look at our first point. Defending the faith against self-sufficiency. Now, now I want you to think about the phrase, believe in yourself. Thatcher, do you believe in yourself? <laughs> Thatcher! I'll ask you again at the end. That's all right. That's why, we're, that's why we're doing this, right? So what do you think that means? That's a rhetorical question. Don't answer it, Thatcher. What do you think it means? Does it mean to, to simply believe that you exist? Like, I believe in myself. I exist. I'm here. Yeah. Do you believe in you? Yeah, I'm here. No. Unlikely. Uh, does it mean that, that, that there, there's a belief that is within you? Like, I believe within myself. Like, I believe within myself. Well, well that's unlikely, too. It seems to mean believe that you have everything you need within you to accomplish anything you want. With enough belief, you are invincible. And in case there's any, any doubt, I decided to, to consult the experts on the internet. So here's what the website Soul Salt has to say about believing in yourself. Quote, believing in, believing in yourself means having faith in your own capabilities. It means believing that you can do something, that it is within your ability. When you believe in yourself, you can overcome self-doubt and have the confidence to take action and get things done. So that's what it means to believe in yourself. The next question would be, why is believing in yourself so important? Well, I found an explanation of this online as well. But this comes from the, the website Live Your True Story. Live Your True Story. Okay, so, so why is it important to, to believe in yourself? Quote, a strong belief in yourself can bring you all these benefits and more. You recognize your ability to accomplish goals. You're optimistic about the future as you set goals and achieve them. Deep down inside, you know you can do anything. Hmm. So the worldly idea of believing in yourself is so you can be and do anything that you want. There is no goal too lofty, no objective too high, no record that can't be broken because you know you can do it. And even when things get hard, it's just one more opportunity to really see how much you've got in your tank to overcome and conquer. Now, to be honest, 
the first thing I think about when I read stuff like this is that the author has to be unmarried, have no children, and be less than 30 years old. Because all of those benchmarks will cause you to quit believing in yourself pretty quickly. But, even so, it's still a popular mantra and a popular way of trying to motivate people, even those who are married with children and suffering. That's why it's so maddening. Now, what would be one immediate thought we should have as Christians when we hear the phrase, believe in yourself? Well, just like the Bible never, ever says we should love ourselves, it never, ever says that we should believe in ourselves either. Where we're told to put our belief is in God. We're told to believe in God. And if we're using believe in the same way here, that means we're supposed to put our trust in him and his power. The Apostle John records Jesus saying this very thing in John 14.1. So John's recording Jesus speaking, and Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. So if believing in yourself is the same thing as believing in God, you have a dilemma. Who is the one providing the support, strength, and motivation if you believe in yourself? You are. And you're not God. So that's idolatry. But it actually makes sense for the one who doesn't follow Christ to believe in himself, right? Because who else is he going to believe in? Who else do you think he trusts? Who else is he going to get to, to do the work and to accomplish the goal? He's got nowhere else to turn but himself. This is actually a sin, and it's called self-sufficiency. And God hates self-sufficiency. Listen to what Jesus tells you is possible if you work on your own. This is from John 15, 5. This, again, is Jesus speaking. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, what does nothing mean? It means nothing. Now, it obviously doesn't mean nothing as in the fact that you'll just lie there as a big pile of flesh. Right? You're still able to do things. Right? But as the ESV Study Bible says it this way, it means nothing of eternal value or an inability to produce spiritual fruit. Believing in yourself will not gain you anything towards eternal life. The idea of believing yourself also is directly opposed to the sovereignty and providence of God. I'm going to borrow and paraphrase from John Piper, who just wrote a 600-page book on this topic. So, so some of this is a little bit of Piper blended in. So, sovereignty means all-powerful, all-knowing, and able to do what he wants. God has the power to do anything that he wants, okay? But providence is God's wisdom and purpose in bringing about all that he desires to fulfill his plan for the world. So Piper describes it this way, providence is wise and purposeful sovereignty. Providence is wise and purposeful sovereignty. You cannot believe in yourself and God's sovereignty. Proverbs 16.9 is a direct rebuke of self-sufficiency. Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Or, or what Job says to God, I know you can do all things, and none of your plans can be thwarted. There is nothing that happens in the universe that is not ordained in some way by God. 
Believing in yourself is a rejection of God's plan and purpose. So let, let's take a look at a specific example. I want you to think about the show American Idol. All right, they're going into their 18th season. It's pretty incredible. Every year, they have more than 400,000 people between the ages of 18 and 28 audition in the first round in 20 cities around the country. Now think about that. If, if you expanded it between, uh, beyond 18 and 28, I mean, there's 400,000 just with that in 20 cities. Imagine if you, you expanded it. It'd be millions of people. Each city, right, after that first audition, each city's narrowed down to about 750 each, right? And they have a second audition. From that, from that 750 in each of those 20 cities, an average of 10 per city get to go to Hollywood and sing before the panel. Of course, 40 from that get a chance to actually appear before the judges. Basically, if you're, you're really good or really bad, and from there, about 21 move on to the actual competition that you see on TV. And from that, only one wins. Now, how many of those 400,000 people were told if they just believe in themselves, they will win American Idol? Maybe all of them. Well, was it true? Would the argument be that the winner was the one who believed in himself or herself the most? Think about the devastation that this mindset brings. There are very few people who succeed in the way we define success. And if we're our own gods, if it all falls on us, then every failure is our own. Every time we fall short, we have exposed our inability to believe strong enough and hard enough. Is it no wonder, just quoting a couple of stats from the last message. It is, it's no wonder then that America is the third most depressed nation in the world and the second most addicted to drugs and alcohol. This constant drumbeat that everything we need is inside of us, it makes us think we're God. And when we fail over and over and over again, we become atheists of ourselves. We become atheists of, of, of our purpose and our dignity. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? You're not God. That's what's wrong. The world is going to continue to devour itself because it has put its faith in itself. When you get a chance, you should read Isaiah 46, verses 5 through 11. It's Isaiah 46, verses 5 through 11. I'm not going to read it all tonight. I'm just going to read one verse from it. But it's a really good passage about God's sovereignty and providence. But for now, I'm just going to read this one verse from, from Isaiah 46:10. I, I declare, this is God speaking, I declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. It is God's purposes and plans that will become reality, not ours. We cannot will anything to happen that God has not ordained. God can do all things through himself who strengthens himself. Now, again, it's not surprising that the world would fall for this self-sufficiency since, since it needs to believe in something, right? It needs to believe that strength and determination and, and motivation and power comes from somewhere. But, but Christians are increasingly buying into this mindset. And one way that they do so is through this Bible verse, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Maybe you already have a question about this. Or, or maybe you're already saying, 
I see. So it's okay to believe in myself as long as I know that it's, it's Christ who gives me the strength. Well, we need to take a look at this passage specifically to really get an idea about what Paul has in mind and why he wrote it. And I know you're going to have certain questions about some of this as well. I'm hoping that we'll, we'll hit them in, in, at the very end in the application part. So our second point, we're going to examine the Christian version of this idea and how we must contend for the faith through contentment. Contend for the faith through content, contentment. So let's turn to Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13. Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13. I'm going to start reading uh, in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. This is Paul writing. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So let's, let's take a look at this passage. Now, when Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians, he was in prison, most likely in the city of Rome. And I thought about this today when, when uh, Pete was announcing that, that we raised almost $10,000 for Jacob Young up in, in New Hampshire. See, this goes back 2,000 years, right? So, so the Philippian church raised money and they sent it to Paul, who was in prison in Rome. And, and that's the same thing that we did today or, or this last week. We, we raised money and we're sending it to, to a church planner in New Hampshire. So, so this is a, a tradition within the, the Christian community. Now, Paul had been arrested before for preaching the gospel, but, but this time was a little more ominous. He was facing the death penalty. Early in, in the letter, though, he speaks of how it's been good that he was in prison. In the first chapter, he shares that all the guards have now heard the gospel from him. He also points out that many other believers in the region and in the area, in, in Rome and the surrounding areas, they had been emboldened by his, they had been emboldened to share the gospel because of his imprisonment. Now this is a really important part of the letter, knowing that Paul is looking at his confinement as an ultimate benefit of the gospel. Now he's writing to the Philippians because they were one of his favorite churches. It was the first church that he planted in Europe, and they had been faithful to him by, by sending these provisions, as we just said, during his imprisonment. They had also sent uh, Epaphroditus to offer him words of encouragement and support. And they had been kind to him, and they didn't reject him, which at that time being put in prison was just considered shameful. And they didn't, they didn't forget about him. They didn't, they didn't leave him behind. They kept, they kept him in their prayers, and they kept sending things to him. Now, when we get to chapter 4, Paul is finishing up with some, some thoughts about Paul or about God and his provision. If you take a quick look at verses 4 through 9, you'll see an interesting setup for tonight's passage. In verse 6, Paul tells the Philippians to, quote, not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And then Paul says this, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So just keep this phrase in your mind, peace of God, the peace of God. Then Paul encourages them to think in this way. Think about what is true, 
honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise. When you think on these things, you will begin to practice them. And what happens next? Verse 9, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, this is similar to the previous phrase, but a little different, right? God of peace, peace of God. God of peace, peace of God. This is an enlightening section that sets up for tonight's passage. When we think on the things of God, the God of peace will give us the peace of God. And what does Paul write next? He thanks the Philippians for the way they have supported him with physical provisions during his time in prison. Food, clothing, maybe some other items. But then he says in verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need though, for I have learned in whatever situation I am, whatever situation I am in, to be content. And then he gets more specific. He's been brought low and he has abounded. He's had a little and he's had a lot. He's faced hunger and he's had plenty. He's had much and he hasn't had enough. Yet he has learned a secret and he wants to share it with the Philippians. He can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. He can do all things through him who strengthens him. So I want you to think about where Paul has directed this portion of the letter to the Philippians. He is most likely tired hungry, dirty, and thinking about his probable execution in the near future. And in the midst of all that, he is content. Content means satisfied. It means not wanting of anything. He doesn't want anything, and he's letting them in. He's letting the Philippians in on the secret. That's literally how he describes it, the secret. I've learned the secret. The secret is that God gives him the strength to endure pain and pleasure Plenty and nothing, protection or fear. God gives him the strength. The God of peace gives him the peace of God. So the reason Paul writes, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, isn't to get himself motivated to overthrow the guards. He's not prepping himself to go out with a bang of glory. He's not trying to perform a miracle through his power and strength. He's just content. And it is the God of peace that gives him the strength for contentment. So let's revisit the examples we used tonight to re-examine what they mean in light of the truth of this verse. So if there was a Christian auditioning for American Idol, and her well-meaning friend said, just remember, you can do all things through him who strengthens you. The, the, the contestant should be cautious about how she applies that verse. If her friend means that she will be successful if she just remembers that God has given her the strength to do it, or that she will overcome her nervousness of the audition, she is falling into the same mindset of believing in herself. If, if the friend, though, means, you know what, whether you are cut or move on, whether you feel confident while singing or choke on your words, whether you win the competition or become one of the audition everyone mocks for years to come, you can be content since you are a follower of Christ. And if you're worried about how you will handle it all, just remember, you can do all things through him who gives you the strength to do it. That's a drastically different message. That would be an accurate way of utilizing this passage. The power to be content no matter the outcome. The secret is that you can do all things through him who strengthens you. Or let's take a look at Steph Curry's own declaration of what the verse, I can do all things, means to him. He says it's his motivator to be great, 
to accomplish great things on the court. There's certainly truth to that. I'm not ignoring the fact that, that it is the strength and power of God that gives us the abilities and the gifts that we have. But what the verse really means is, if you go 0 for 20 from the ark, will you be content? If you blow out your knee tomorrow and never play again, will you be content? If the NBA fans started to hate you because you really got specific about what it means to follow Christ, if they really call you out on LGBTQ issues, social justice beliefs, contrary to the gospel, abortion, etc., would you be content to lose your status in the league to abide in Christ? If not, Paul has a message for you. You can do all things through him who strengthens you. God will strengthen you towards contentment no matter what happens next. This is true for all of us. The key to life is not self-belief, self-determination, or self-sufficiency. As Romans 8.28 tells us, God is working all things together for his glory and our good. Therefore, nothing is slipping past him. Nothing is forgotten by him. He's not making your life hard with purposelessness. It all has meaning and value because of who God is, not you. We may want something else for our lives. We may want success in the way that it is measured by the world, money or fame, great moments on the NBA court. But we are called to contentment in our circumstances no matter what happens. And when you are convinced that you won't be able to handle it, Paul tells you the secret to contentment is knowing that no matter what happens next, good or bad, you will be able to do it because the power of God will give you the strength to endure so what does this mean for the 21st century teenager? I'm sure there would be some legitimate questions that arise from this lesson, so, so we're just going to take a look at a few. So, so the number one thing I would probably ask if I were you, should I not have goals? Should I not try and achieve anything? This reminds me of the question people ask when you tell them that they shouldn't love themselves. They automatically say, well, then I, should I hate myself? No. The answer to not loving yourself is humility. And this is a similar answer. If you flip back to Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, you know, this is a, the same letter Paul's writing. So Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. The Apostle Paul is addressing this very thought with them. This is what Paul says. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In verse 4, Paul says, let each of you look not only to his own interests. Now, there is an assumption in this verse that you will have interests, things that you're interested in, right? You will have desires. And Paul's not telling the Philippians to stop having them. He's saying, as you pursue them, don't forget about the interests of others. Don't sacrifice all those other people to, give, to do and get what you want. In fact, taking it back to verse 3, he's telling us to avoid selfish ambition by believing others are more significant than ourselves. To summarize, Paul is saying, be humble in your pursuits and don't do them at the expense and dignity of others. It's not wrong to have goals and desires and aspirations. As followers of Christ, we speak of a calling. First, God calls us to himself for salvation. 
But we can also refer to it in, in what is the task that is assigned to us in life. In fact, the, the word vocation comes from the Latin word vocatio, or vocatio, which means calling. And if you think about the word calling, it involves someone else. You can't call yourself. Someone outside of you calls you. So it's natural to ask God, what have you called me to? Or what are you calling me to? It's likely that many of our gifts and talents will line up with our calling. It certainly seems logical and normal that, that God would give us a desire for something that also fits our skills. That's not always how it works, though. And maybe the way we think it should play out isn't how God wants to use us. John Piper describes it as holy ambition to make it distinct from what's often promoted in our society, which is better understood as selfish ambition. And that's why we spend so much time in our Bibles and in prayer. As a young person, take a look at the areas in which you thrive. Take a look at what you're good at. Take a look at what your interests are. Take a look at what you love. Examine those interests and abilities. It is not sinful to seek that to which God has called you. As you grow and develop, there will be clarity along the way. As long as you keep your desires secondary to God's desires, you are not out of step with our biblical calling. And that brings us to our second point of application, though, the phrase, if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills. Um, I have done approximately 1,400 speaking engagements in my 23-year career. Somewhere around 2002, I started saying this little prayer before every presentation. I walk to the left, typically, and I say, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Let your will be done. Not mine, but yours. I say that every time, because I know what I want from the assembly. I want a standing ovation. I want everyone to be like, this guy's awesome. He's awesome. I really want to get to know him better, you know. I want to come off the stage and people are flocking around me and signing autographs. I'm like, yes, I know. That's what I want. I want people to say, that's the greatest assembly we have ever had. That's what I want. But when you say, but not my will, Lord, but yours, well, that means people say, you stink. They sleep during your assembly. They heckle, they boo you, whatever. But, but, the idea is the contentment comes from saying, not my will, but yours. So this is what's best for me. So if you turn to, to James 4, uh, 15, verse 15. Uh, well, well, actually, I'm going to read a little bit. I'm going to read from 13 down to 15, but uh, just listen to this. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. All right, so, so if we look at this passage, all right, this is tying in. So you, you have what you think is your calling. You, you have your interests, your desires. You, you take this next step and you're saying, you know, God, make me this. God, take me down this path. I really want to be a doctor. I, I, I really want to, to, to um, be a preacher, I really want to be a missionary, or, you know, I want to, uh, I want to be a, a mechanic. I want, like, you have all these things that you're interested in, and you, you feel like, maybe I'm called to this. And, J and James says, it's okay. Remember James is Jesus' brother, too? I always get a kick out of that. He says, it's okay to make plans, right? Today or tomorrow, we'll go into town. That's what the person's saying in this. 
And while we're there, we're going to sell some stuff. We're going to buy some stuff. We're going to try to make a profit. He, he's not saying you can't do all that. So, so the plan is to go to town, do business, and make money. But if you do that outside of God's plan and providence, it's boasting. It's saying that this is what's going to happen. And the truth is that you have no power to make that happen. Even Jesus Christ himself, in his humanity, says this in Mark 14, 36. You remember this prayer? He's praying to God. He knows that, that he's going to be crucified. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus Christ in his humanity submits to the Father's will. I mean, isn't this an absolute refutation of believe in yourself? Is there any way to look at that phrase? You can do or you can be or do anything you want as anything other than boasting? Are you greater than Jesus in making happen what you want to happen? We must repent of this foolishness. We should always say, if the Lord wills, or Lord willing, as much as possible. It, it can get a little annoying if you say it all the time, but, but you, you, should, you should frequently say, Lord willing. This phrase is a humble acknowledgement, acknowledgement that only what God wants to happen will happen. So if you have big dreams, you want to be a professional athlete, you want to travel the world. You want to have a high-paying job. You want to be famous. You want to find a cure for coronavirus. Always, always, always say, Lord willing. This is how I would say it now. I would love to play professional football, but I submit to the Lord's will, not my own. I would, I would love to find a cure for coronavirus, but not my will, Lord, but yours. And third, our third point of application takes us from calling to uh, if the Lord wills, number three, you can do all things through him who strengthens you. See, here's the amazing thing. This verse can give us great comfort when we approach it correctly. Right? When we're told to believe in ourselves, we're setting ourselves up for a disaster. You have no ability within yourself. You do not have any power that can override the will of God. Your failure or success is not rooted in your mindset or the power of positive thinking. You are not sovereign. But the one who is sovereign exercises his providence in every moment of your life. He always has your best interests in mind. He never forgets about you. He never changes his love for you. He is not impressed with your successes and he's not discouraged at your failures. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are right where you want to be. Your daily life might look like a mess sometimes. It might look like a disaster. You may have consistent struggles with the same sins over and over again. You might already be seeing the failures of trying to believe in yourself. God has a message for you tonight. God is strengthening you to be content. If you have great ambitions that you think are from God and you fall way short, you can be content. If you haven't gotten as far in life as you thought you would, you can be content. If you've fallen short of the goals you've set, you can be content. If you're forever a nobody and never are credited with doing anything great and no one remembers you and the world ignores you, you can be content. Why? Because you can do all things through him who strengthens you. Your value is rooted in your Savior, not yourself. The God of peace will give you the peace of God as you submit to his will for your life. 
If you've never submitted your life to Christ, though, you are still believing in yourself. Somehow you think you can achieve salvation through just being good enough, being nice enough, donating enough money here, enough time here. That's believing in yourself. And that will bring you to ruin on the day of judgment. There's only one thing sufficient on that last day. And that's to be in Christ. As Jesus says, apart from me you can do nothing. That's especially true on the day of judgment. If you are in Christ though, you are saved. You are saved from God's just wrath. And this applies to you. You will be content because God will strengthen you. You can do all things through, through him, him who strengthens you. But if not, you're going to have to keep trying to strengthen yourself. And I'm telling you right now, you're not going to make it. You don't have enough. There is not enough in your tank. And maybe you think if you're 15 and everything's worked out pretty good for you, it's coming. You get to be 50 and, and, and it seems like there's, there's many more failures than successes. But you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you if you put your faith in him. If you've never done that, then tonight is tonight. Is the right. Stop wasting time. Stop saying, oh, uh, well, I'll do it next time. Or, uh, well, you know, there's probably still a little bit more time before, before. You don't know anything. You could be going down to the games and it's the second coming. And it's too late. So tonight's the night. So whether you need to, to see me or see your parents tonight or, or see someone else, tonight's the night. Put your faith in Christ. You say, I'm a sinner. I know I need a Savior. I don't want to stand on my own. I, ask, or, or I, um, I, I know that Jesus is my substitute, that he died for me, he rose for me, he lived the life I couldn't live, and I put my faith there. Do that and have eternal life.